So uh, Alan and Maggie said this is Advent, the second week. Advent comes from a Latin word that means coming or visit. And so what we're doing is trying to figure out what does it look like for us to prepare ourselves for God to visit us. Yes, he visited us 2,000 years ago in the person, this baby Jesus. And yes, he's going to visit us again at some point in the future with Jesus coming back on a white horse. But what about now? And what we said last week is God continues to come to us if we'll ask him to. And so last week I encouraged every one of you to think about what do you want for Christmas from God? What, where do you need to see him work? Where do you need him to visit you? And what circumstance in your life? And so what we're looking at over the four weeks of Advent is how do we prepare our hearts for that activity? When he does come, when he does work in our lives, how can we be ready for that? Last week Chad Cannon talked about waiting. And if we ask God to get involved, sometimes he acts instantly. Oftentimes there's a period of waiting, whether it's a day or a week or a month or a decade, there's some period of waiting that we all undergo when we ask God to act in our lives. And so Chad kind of talked us through what can we do as we're waiting. This week, as Alan and Maggie said, the theme is acceptance. We've waited and then at some point God acts and our responsibility in that is to accept what he's doing. And Mary is the classic Example: The passage that um, Alan and Maggie read, that's the classic picture of what it looks like to accept God's work in our lives. You know this. One of the attributes of God is that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. For God to be omnipotent, it doesn't mean he can make a square triangle or make a rock so big he can't move it. Those, that's silly. For God to be omnipotent, what it means is he can do whatever he wants and that nothing or no one outside of him can move him off of his purposes. Here are a few verses. Isaiah 46.10, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Psalm 33.10, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord works out everything, for his own ends. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. You see the theme that runs through there. God will accomplish his purposes, his will. He's going to, whatever's in his heart, ultimately those things are going to come to pass. That's what it means for God to be omnipotent. So if he says, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to turn right, he's going to turn right. And nobody, nothing outside of him can cause him to turn left. So when we're talking about this idea of God working in our life, of him visiting us, of him coming to us, we need to recognize the hierarchy there, or the, the, the preconditions. The hierarchy is he's God and we're not. Chad talked about that last week. Jesus is the master, and we need to recognize our role in term, where we fit with him. He's the master, we're the servant. Yes, he's our father, we're his children. He calls the shots in terms of the preconditions. God comes, but it's on his terms. He works in the way that he sees fit, not the way that we see fit. And so there's this, for all of us, there's this heart thing that has to happen where we're willing to accept how God wants to work. Yes, God, I want you to come. I have this circumstance in my life. I need this. I want this. This needs to happen. There needs to be a recognition as we're praying that, that not only will God act when he wants, but in the way that he wants. For hundreds of years, thousands of Jews had been asking God to work. They're in slavery to the Romans, and they're saying, God, fix it. We have a, these pagans are running our country. 
were not, according to everything that you laid out in Deuteronomy, all of these blessings, all of these promises, we don't see any of those. Yeah, we messed up, and you punished us, but, but we're back now. We're following the law. We're doing what you said. You've got to come and fix this. Where is this Savior, this Messiah that you've promised? Thousands of Jews for hundreds of years asking, 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 God, fix it. And at some point, 3 or 4 B.C., it wasn't zero, the guy that did the math subtracted wrong, when Jesus was born, that's, how, that's God's response. Thousands and thousands of people praying for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the way God chooses to respond is through a 12-year-old girl. When Mary, this angel Gabriel comes to visit Mary, most likely she's 12. Most girls were married by the time they were 13. Before they hit puberty, they would have been married in order to ensure their purity. To be betrothed, that's different than being engaged for us. It's more serious. The only way you can unbetrothed, become unbetrothed, that's not a word, is through divorce or death. Uh, there's already been a contract between Joseph's family and Mary's family. Joseph's already paid at least part of the bride price for Mary. She's still living with her family. Joseph is building a room for them adjacent to his parents' house where Mary's going to live. And once that room is built, usually takes 6, 9, 12 months, he's going to go and get Mary and bring her home, and they'll consummate the marriage. That's the only thing lacking. Legally, they're already married. Just relationally, they're not there yet. But that's the only thing lacking for them. So that, thousands and thousands of Jews, hundreds and hundreds of years, God chooses that girl, this 12-year-old girl, betrothed to this 18, 19, 20-year-old guy named Joseph to say, that's how I'm going to answer all of these prayers that all of y'all have been praying for all of these years. If you go back and you read Luke 1, 5 through 25, there's a story of Zechariah. Alan mentioned them. Zechariah was a priest. He was married to Elizabeth. According to the Bible, they were blameless. They were upright. They followed God's laws. Zechariah is on um, rotation in the temple. And during his time, the same angel that appeared to Mary appears to him. And if you read the stories, the parallel, it's Luke's making a point. They each got the same amount of information delivered in the same way. The same angel, Gabriel, appears to them and says almost the same thing. This, Abra this angel, Gabriel, says to Zechariah, um, you're going to have a son. He and his wife, it says, according to Luke, they're well along in years. I don't know how old that is. Elizabeth is barren, so they haven't had any children. And this angel appears and says, you're going to have a son, and you need to call him John. And this is how I want you to raise him, and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And so we have this picture of this priest who's married and whose wife has been unable to have children. And this angel comes and says, you're going to have a son. And then over here, we have this picture of this 12-year-old girl who's betrothed. An angel appears and says, you're going to have a son as well. Now, the expectations from our end is that this guy, Zachariah, is going to jump all over it. And he's going to say, yes, this is what we've been praying for. To be barren, to not have children during this time is to be cursed by God. That's what people think. If you don't have kids, something's wrong with you. God is in some way withholding one of the most significant blessings he can give to you. So you've done something wrong. You can see in verse, I think it's 25, um, Elizabeth says this, in these days he has shown his favor and what? Taken away my disgrace from among the people. That's how she saw her barrenness. It was a disgrace for her and for her husband in front of the community that they live in. They're already married. 
There is no risk, there is no downside for Elizabeth getting pregnant. None. It's all up. It's all blessings. It's all positive. Mary, on the other hand, not so much. Again, she's 12, and she's not married. For her to become pregnant causes some problems. Again, the only thing, the only thing separating her and Joseph from marriage is actually having sex, and that will consummate their marriage. But at this point, if she comes up pregnant, and he knows it wasn't him, Joseph, and that means she committed adultery. And so it says that he was considering divorcing her. His compassion is he was going to divorce her quietly. That is, he wasn't going to bring her before the town where she would be publicly shamed. Theoretically, she should have been stoned, according to Deuteronomy 22, but they most likely didn't stone. They wouldn't have done that, most likely. She just would have been publicly shamed, publicly humiliated, and most likely would have never gotten married again. And so she would have been life as a single mom. You know, some of you know what that's like now, then even more dangerous, even more precarious a position. So for her to say yes, she's taking a huge gamble. All we know is what Alan and Maggie read. That's all we have that this angel said to Mary. No word about, don't worry, I'm going to let Joseph know. Don't, it's going to be a, none of that. All we know is this angel says, this is what's going to happen to you. Are you okay with this? Are you willing to say yes to this? And she says yes, taking a huge risk. Her entire life is in the balance here. If Joseph, being a righteous man that is zealous for the law, does what the law says, he should divorce her. And she should spend life as a single mom raising this baby. That's, according, that's all she's got to go on. But if you read what happens, it's the total opposite. Mary, who has everything to risk, says, absolutely, I'm in. And Zechariah, who has everything to gain, says, eh, how, am I, how do I know? How do I know this is really going to happen? You see that in verse 18 of Luke 1. So after this angel talks to Zechariah, here's his response. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Look at Mary's response in contrast in verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Two different questions. Zechariah is looking for assurance. How can I be sure? Maybe for them, they maybe maybe something they've been praying about for years for her to get pregnant. And maybe they had their small group praying for her to get pregnant. And people had said, This is it. I feel it. This is the year. I had a dream. And you're gonna, you know, and maybe they had gone through all of this and whatever fertility treatments are available in 5 BC, they're doing that and drinking the potions and rubbing roots on their foreheads or whatever you do at that point to try to get pregnant. And they're trying to follow the law so God will bless them. It says they're upright and blameless and let's not veer to the left or the right and let's be scrupulous and meticulous and all of these things. And month after month, nothing, nothing, nothing. And so maybe for him, he's thinking, I, I can't go to her unless I know. I can't raise her hopes again only to have them disappointed. Maybe. Maybe it's his own heart and he's fearful and he's afraid and he's doubting. But for whatever reason, an angel has appeared to him, told him point blank, this is what's going to happen. This is what you name the kid and this is what he's going to do. And his immediate response, 
how can I be sure? The fact that there's an angel telling him, obviously, is not enough for him to be sure. Look at Mary. Her response. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Different question. What I think she's asking is, what am I supposed to do? All right, I get it. I'm in. What's my responsibility in this? Y'all have all had the... Y'all have had health in sixth grade. And that's what she's asking. What am, I, what's my, what am I supposed to do here? It's a completely different question. She's not looking for guarantees. She doesn't say, what about Joseph? She doesn't say, what am I supposed to tell my dad? She doesn't say, who's going to take care of She doesn't ask none of that. She just says, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to cooperate with what you're saying, Gabriel, is going to happen? And you see the response of Gabriel to both. To Zechariah, he says, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. So what Gabriel is saying is, how can this be? How about, how can you know the fact that there's an angel telling you, an angel who stands in the presence of God? So to show you, that this is going to happen. You're not going to be able to talk for the next nine months. And that's what happens for Zechariah. And this is how the angel responds to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who, excuse me, who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. And then you see, again, this classic picture of what it means to accept God's will. Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. So for us, what we're looking for this morning is how do we cultivate a heart like Mary? So there's this thing, whatever it is. Over the course of our life, it'll be a lot of different things. God, I need you to work in this situation. I need this job or help me in this relationship or direct me in this decision. Whatever it is. God, we need, I need you to visit me here on this, in this way. And we're waiting. We want to cultivate these hearts so that when God does visit us, when he does come, we respond like Mary and say, I'm the Lord's servant. Do what you want. Not like Zechariah. And say, how can I be sure? That's, that's not who we want to be. We want to have hearts that when God, even if it's, risky as it was for Mary, even if it's unexpected as it was for Mary, even if it doesn't make sense as it was for Mary, that our hearts are in such a place that we can accept what he's doing and move ahead with him and not thwart what he's doing. So how do we do that? We're going to look at Joseph. Flip back over to Matthew 1. We can see a little bit more from Joseph than we can um, from Mary. Look at three quick slices of his life. Chapter 1, starting in verse 18. You heard the birth announcement from Mary's side. Here's the birth announcement from Joseph's side. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. We just read about that. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Again, that's the righteous thing to do. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. 
Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from all their sins. Now, I don't know how much of a time gap there was between Mary receiving this vision, this dream, and Joseph having the dream. And I don't know why there was any. Like, it seems like maybe God would coordinate those things. He's got more than one angel. Maybe he could let them both know at the same time. But that doesn't appear to be the case. There's some gap between when Mary hears from Gabriel and then a and she gets pregnant, and she tells Joseph, hey, this is the thing, because he's considering divorcing her. I don't think at this point it's public knowledge. I think it's something that she has kept to herself, and Joseph has two options. He can bring her into his house, because they're already legally married. They just haven't consummated the marriage. So if he brings her into the house, everything's good. Nobody needs to know otherwise. According to Luke 3 in the genealogy of Jesus, it says, Jesus was the son of of Joseph, so it was thought. So that's ultimately what he does. He brings her into his house. It says here that they don't have, they don't consummate the marriage till after Jesus is born. That way there's no question that he was indeed born to a virgin. But at this, Joseph can bring her in and nobody needs to know. I don't know that there's this huge risk for her that she's going to be publicly exposed unless Joseph does that by divorcing her. And then he's saying, that's not my child. It's somebody else's. She's an adulterer and all of the things that follow. So what Joseph, at this point, he's weighing his options. I divorce her or I bring her home and believe this story that it was God who has gotten her pregnant. Tough one to believe, I would say. So he's weighing those two things, and then he has this dream. Again, I don't know how much time has passed. Um, it says she, was, she went to her, sister, or her relative Elizabeth for three months. Maybe it's during that three-month period, Joseph is trying to decide what to do, and then she comes back, or he calls her back, and she moves in with I don't know. So that's what's going on. And then verse 24, when Joseph woke up from this dream, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, so that's what he decided. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and then he gave him the name Jesus. So if we're going to have this heart like Mary and like we see from Joseph, he doesn't get the publicity that Mary gets in terms of having this wonderful, obedient, trusting heart. But if you look at what he does, he's in there with her. If we're going to have this heart like Mary or like Joseph, one of the things we can see is for us to accept what God is doing in our life, we have to be willing to accept the responsibility for that work. When we ask God to get involved in our life, we're not resigning ourselves to passivity. We're acknowledging our responsibility. In that classic statement at Luke 138, Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. There's a, that implies submission. He's the master, I'm the servant. Yes, but it also implies responsibility. Servants have stuff to do. They don't just sit around all day. They have a role to play. Their duties, there's jobs, there's responsibilities. And for us, if we're going to accept, if we, if we want to have this heart that, that is in a position to accept God coming to us, visiting us in whatever way he decides, because he's omnipotent, it's up to him, not up to us, then we have to have hearts that are willing to accept our responsibility for his work. For Joseph, saying yes to being a dad, it's one of the biggest yeses anybody will ever make. It's not a one-time thing. That's a lifetime yes reorients his life. Of course he planned on having children with Mary. Probably not so soon. But he had every intention of having children with her. So he had, he, in, in his mind, he was always going to be a father, just not now. 
They missed the whole dual income, no kid phase of life. They went straight to diapers. They didn't have diapers. Straight to all of that. When he said yes in this dream, when he, to this dream, when he pulled Mary into his house, he was saying yes for the rest of his life to the responsibility of being the father of Jesus. Again, Luke 3, he, Joseph was the father, so it was thought of Jesus. He raised Jesus as his own. He wasn't the biological father, but he was the legal father of Jesus. All of you have had dads. You know what that entails. He was saying yes to all of that. It was a responsibility for him. It didn't just, he didn't just say yes and then sit back. Him saying yes to the Lord in this dream was reorienting his life towards being just like it was for Mary. Both of them, there was this willingness on their part to say, what am I responsible for in this? didn't mean they were passive and they just sat around and said, God's going to do what God's going to do. They recognize there's responsibility there. There are things that have to happen. If I'm going to be his mom, these are the responsibilities of being a mom. These are the responsibilities of being a dad. And they executed those. So for us, we need to have that same sense of responsibility. And this is where you need to know yourself. Some of you, some of us, we tend towards passivity. When it comes to having God work in our life, what we want to do is we want to sit there and have him shoot lightning bolts down. We don't want to, for whatever reason, we can call it faith because we want, it doesn't matter what we call it, it's being passive. We're not taking responsibility for what God wants to do in our life. It's something Alan said earlier, he's looking for partners. And for some of you, that's, God doesn't, you know, that, that almost seems blasphemous. Why does God need partners? He doesn't need them. He chose, He set things up. And the way he's chosen to work in the world is through his people. If you read through the Bible, the number of times that he rains fire and brimstone down from the sky, pretty small compared to the number of times he works through his people. Even the number of times he works through messengers like angels and does stuff completely without human interaction. Very few in comparison to the number of times he works through people. This is, the way he normally works is through us. We have a responsibility to that. And if you tend to be passive, if you tend to say, I want God to do everything, you don't just want God to open a door. You want him to roll out the red carpet and have the guy with the flags waving you in. It's not going to happen most of the time. He's looking for us to say yes to him. So if you want to cultivate a heart that's willing to accept responsibility, what, is that? what do you do? How do you do that? Zechariah had this. He was blameless. He was upright. He kept the law. He was a good man. And there's no reason to say he wasn't a good man. Every indication is that he was. And ultimately, he, he went with God's desires for him. Elizabeth got pregnant. There's no reason to think he was a bad father to John. He was a good guy. He knew the rules, and he followed him. But when the point came, will you say yes? He waffled and said, how can I be sure? That shows a lack of trust. Mary, we don't know anything about her. She gets this weird greeting, highly favored one. We don't know anything about her at this point. But we know when the point came, will you say yes? She said, absolutely. 
That reflects trust. If we want to be people who accept our end of the load, who accept responsibility for what God's doing in our life, we have to cultivate trust with him. And I don't know how to do that other than relationship. Following the law does not develop trust. Being a good guy, being a good girl, it does not develop trust. Even being upright and blameless doesn't develop trust. The only way I trust it, it's an interpersonal dynamic. And the only way I know to develop an interpersonal dynamic is in relationship with the other person. If we're going to be people who, when God moves, we say yes, and we're willing to accept our responsibility in what he's doing in our life, there's going to come a trust point. And if our response is, how can I be sure? We haven't developed trust yet. And I don't know how to do that other than spending time with him, developing a personal relationship. We've talked about that before. You know how to do that. You just have to do it. You can be the best guy, the best girl in the world. You can know the rules. You can follow. And I'm saying this as a rule follower. You can know the rules. You can follow the rules. None of that will help you trust when he says yes or no. Here it is, Mary. Say yes to me. You could be risking your entire future. Following the rules will not help you say yes to that. You won't have developed a deep enough relationship to say, you know what? I can't see the way through, but I know the guy who's calling me. We'll be like Zachariah and say, how can I be sure? Where is that? Where's, where's the guarantee that you're not going to let me fail? Matthew 1.18. Skip over. No, excuse me. Skip over to chapter 2. When they had gone, so this is the wise men, the magi come, then they leave. So that's who they are. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother. Escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod, that's the king at this time, is uh, going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where they stayed until the death of Herod. So if we want to develop this heart that accepts what God is doing, what can we do kind of in the meantime? One, we need to be willing to accept our share of responsibility. You do that by developing trust with the Lord. The second thing, we need to be willing to accept ongoing direction. Again, if you think about the whole idea of becoming a father or mother, it's not a one-time yes. There's constant decisions that have to be made. And you see this here with Joseph. He's continuing to be directed by the Lord through these dreams in terms of what he needs to do as Jesus' father. And you see his response. During the night, he got up. No waffling. No arguing, no griping. He just he got everybody up and said, we got to go. God, how am I supposed to make a living? God, I've got family somewhere else. Can I go see them? God, can we at least sleep through the night? God, is there some way you can translate? No. Just get up and go without questioning and without delay. That picture there, Joseph had said, was accepting this ongoing direction. And the same thing is true for us. If we're going to be in a position to say yes to God's work in our life, in whatever situation it is, we have to be willing to receive ongoing direction. It's not a one-time deal, and then we can go off and do what we want. We have to be willing to receive this ongoing direction. And so for some of us, we tend to be um, technique-oriented. God, you point me in the right direction. I'll figure out how to get there. You just tell me where to go. And then we go get 
whatever for dummies or whatever 101 or we ask a bunch of other people. There are all kinds of ways of us figuring out exactly how to get there. God, you just point me in the right direction and then I'll fill in all of the blanks. So that's how some of you are wired. You might not consider yourself technique oriented, but it could be a control thing for you. You just want to know the right way to go and then you'll make it happen. That's going to cut against this whole idea of being willing to accept and receive ongoing direction. Because what you're saying is, I don't want ongoing direction. I just want you to show me the finish line. And then I'll figure out how to get there. That's not relational. That's technique-based. That's not what God is about. That's why it rarely works for us to copy what somebody else is doing. What God is looking for from all of us is maturity. He's looking for mature sons and daughters. He's looking for people, I can hear his voice and do what he says. What, yes, we need input from people who love us and love God. Rarely does copying somebody else work. Well, this is the, I see some guy, and he has this life that I think, yeah, that's it for me. How did you get there? And I just start following those same steps. doesn't work that way. Because what I've done in that is I've cut off my entire relationship with the Lord and said, I don't need you to direct me. I know how to get there. You get that. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate a heart that honors God? The only way I know to do that is by worship. If you want to be someone who receives ongoing direction, that's a a sign that you honor the Lord. When we accept responsibility, that's a trust thing. When we accept ongoing direction, that's an honor thing. I recognize your place in my life. Chad talked about that last week. Jesus is the master, and I recognize that. The only way I know to develop that sense of honor or reverence for the Lord, is through worship, by regularly worshiping God. What worship does, ideally, is it puts our relationship with him in perspective. It reminds us, you know what? He's not my boyfriend. He's my master. Yes, he's my father. He's also the king. And it helps remind me where I stand in relationship to him. If the only time you engage the Lord in worship is for 20 minutes here on Sunday morning, difficult to really develop this heart that honors him. It's just not enough time. There needs to be some way for each of us to worship God outside of this corporate gathering. I'm not going to tell you that you don't have to sing to yourself in the shower or any... I don't care. Just figure out some way for you to worship the Lord. If you want to know what is God looking for in worship, read John 4. Jesus clearly says... This is what the Father's looking for in worship. People who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In truth, that is conforming to reality, knowing who he is. In spirit, that means without regard to externals. He's, he's, um, Jesus responding to someone who says, we're Samaritans and we worship on this mountain and you Jews worship on that mountain. And Jesus cuts it off. You worship in spirit. That is, you don't worry about which mountain you're on. You don't worry about music style. You don't worry about hands in the air or in your pockets or eyes open or eyes closed or standing up or sitting down. or All of that. That's all externals. God is not looking for any of that. And in truth, based on who he really is, he's looking for a heart, yours, my heart, to connect with his heart in worship. Music is a great way to do that, but it's not the only way. But you have to figure out some way of worshiping the Lord on a regular basis. It will cultivate this heart that honors him, which will then will allow you to receive ongoing direction. It's much easier to receive direction from someone you respect than someone you don't. 
And if you can move, position yourself so that, of course, if I said, do you respect, do you honor God? Of course, we're all going to say yes. We don't live that way. Worship helps, again, put us in our rightful place before him. So then we're more open to receiving this ongoing direction that we need. Verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went back to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warmed in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. If we're going to develop this heart that says yes to what God is doing in our life, I want to accept what he's doing. I need to be willing to accept my responsibility for what he's doing. I need to be willing to, res- to accept ongoing direction, and I also need to be willing to accept inconvenience or detours, if you like that word better. It's really just inconvenience, though, to be honest. Joseph, we don't know exactly where he took Mary and Jesus. Most likely it was to a city called Alexandria. There's a huge population of Jews there. It's 300 miles. So immediately he gets up in the night. They walk these 300 miles. Jesus at this point is two, probably. Yes, he's the son of God, but he's still got short legs. So you've got 300 miles with a two-year-old walking. No rest stops. No diapers. You're just hoofing it, bandits, blazing hot in the day, freezing cold at night, to Alexandria. You get there, most people who study this say they were there anywhere from two weeks to seven months. Herod dies, and they're they're supposed to come back. 300 miles back, they get back. Here's another dream. You know what? Don't go back to where you were. Herod's son, who was a wicked and evil man, is reigning. You need to go over here to Nazareth. That's another 190, 110 miles, depending on the route. So within a seven, eight, nine-month window, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph walk about 700 miles round trip in response to these dreams. That's a pain. But just get that. You, your wife, and your two-year-old. We kind of have this picture of Joseph walking and leading Mary on a donkey. Probably not. They're probably all walking together. That's inconvenient. And the same thing is going to be true for us. If you accept God's visitation, God's coming to you, there's going to be times where it's going to be inconvenient. And it's not hard for the sake of being hard. It was For them, it was hard for the sake of saving Jesus' life. It wasn't needless. It wasn't gratuitous. It was absolutely essential. And the same thing will be true for us. There are times where it's going to be hard. It's going to be inconvenient. And the question is, Will we still say yes? To me, when I see obedience in the face of that kind of inconvenience, it just it says love to me. Joseph and Mary. Joseph loved Mary. Joseph loved Jesus. Mary loved Joseph. Mary loved Jesus. And, and Mary and Joseph both loved God enough to say yes in the face of some pretty strong, inconvenient direction. I think it, that's it for us as well. If we can cultivate these hearts that have that level of love for the Lord, it's much easier to say yes when he asks us to do something we don't want to do. It makes it much easier to say yes when he asks us to go to Egypt. Oh, and you just set up camp. I need you to go back. And we just get home. Oh, you know what? Why don't you go here again, this little backwater town where you don't know anybody 
why don't you set up shop there, raise Jesus there. Much easier if we have these hearts of love for him. I don't know, there's lots of different ways to do that. Some of what we've already talked about, worship absolutely helps, developing this deeper personal relationship with God. I think one thing that can help that's really not that difficult, if you want to love God more, one of the things that you can do that I can do is just open our eyes to what he's doing. I think if we can open our eyes to who he is and what he's doing in our lives, it deepens our love for him. When you see, you know what, he really does care. He really is active. He really is gracious. He really is kind. These things that you hear from up front or in your small groups, these things that you read in the Bible, if you'll open your eyes to how he's at work in your life, it will confirm that he is who he said he is and it will cause you to love him more. I'm not talking about any type of romantic feelings. I'm talking about a deep commitment to him. He'll prove himself to you if you'll open your eyes to what he's doing in your life. As Chad mentioned that last week when he talked about being willing to thank God for what he's done. Sometimes we just, we're so busy moving ahead, we don't recognize what he's doing here. I'm so focused on what I need him to do tomorrow, I'm not looking at what he's doing today. And if we can reorient ourselves, even slightly, to looking for how God's at work in our life now. We've talked about this before, just the discipline of thankfulness when you go to bed at night. Try to think of three things you can thank God for. If it's a stretch, either you've had a really, really, really bad day or you weren't paying attention. Most likely, it's because you weren't paying attention. It's, that's me, not paying attention, not remembering. But those are the things that cause it. It's, it's check marks. He doesn't need them. We need to give them to him, though. It's check marks in my book with God. Yes, you are kind. Yes, you are patient. Yes, you are powerful. Yes, you are compassionate. When I see those things in my life, it makes it easier for me to love him. And then when he asks me to do something inconvenient or difficult, more willing to say yes. Because I don't see him as doing it because he's harsh, because he's a taskmaster, because he doesn't care, because he's out of touch, because he just wants to see how high I can jump. I know it's none of those things because I have this whole list that says he's otherwise. You see what I'm saying? Open your eyes to what he's doing in your life. It'll, cultiv- it'll allow you or help you cultivate a heart that loves him. Last thing. This is uh, chapter 1, verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is uh, chapter 2, verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Chapter 2, verse 23. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet, He will be called a Nazarene. Joseph's Joseph's acceptance of what God was doing in his life fulfilled God's purposes for humanity. Joseph saying, yes, yes, I'll bring Mary home. Yes, I'll go to Egypt. Yes, I'll go to Nazareth. Fit into this massive, cosmic, worldwide plan of what God was doing in the world. One of the most convincing proofs that Jesus is who he said he was is that he fulfilled prophecy. These three that he fulfilled, had nothing, he was a baby. He had no control over it. He wasn't asking to go to Egypt when he was two. 
Joseph's obedience helped confirm for all of us that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. And the same thing is true for us. If we say yes, if we're willing to accept how God wants to work in our life, we might not be able to see it, what God's doing in our life. Most likely, it wasn't written 600 years ago in an Old Testament book. and That's not it for us. But he's at work in our community, and he's at work in our world. And although we can't see how he's weaving everything together, if you'll say yes, and if I'll say yes to what he's doing in our lives, ultimately, it will, it will be the same. It will have the same impact, and I mean that. It will have the same impact. Our obedience, your obedience, my obedience, my acceptance, your acceptance of what God is doing in our life. Yes, I'm going to say, yes, I'm going to be Mary and not Zachariah. I'm going to say, how do I obey you? What's my responsibility? Not, can you guarantee this? I'm not looking for success. I'm just looking to obey. If I'll do that, if you'll do that, you're saying yes to being part of something much bigger than you can ever imagine, and so am I. Again, most of what we're doing, it's not written down in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it's written down in heaven. God's already foreordained those things. We talk about that all the time. He's created this stuff in advance for us. And as we say yes, as Dennis and Alice say, yeah, I'll go to Honduras, with all that that means, their, their, their yes, their little yes, is part of a much larger picture of what God is doing in the world. And the same thing is true for you. I'm not saying you've got to go internationally. These areas where you're saying, God, work. I want to see you move in this area of my life or in this relationship or in this area of our city. As he leads you, as he begins to do things in those areas, your little bitty yes has that same echo in heaven. There's fulfillment. That's, to me, that's, about as good as good news can get. What we're doing, it's not wasted. It's not, I heard somebody say the other day, I, I don't get God. It seems, why is he giving us a test here? It's not a test. This, this is it. This is life. And he's looking for us to get involved. I think it's in Matthew 11, Jesus says, maybe 12. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That idea of yoke, that go on an oxen, they were handcrafted, custom-made for the oxen that you had. You didn't just go to the hardware store and pick out a yoke. You, you crafted it, you made it based on the size of the oxen that you had. So to say my yoke is easy, that word is well-fitting. And it's the same thing that's true for us. This stuff that he wants to do in our life, it fits you well. It's perfect. It's handcrafted to who you are. And as you say yes, you're yoking together with Jesus to accomplish his purposes in your life and in the world. Again, I don't, I don't know better news than that. He came not just to forgive us, not just to give us eternal life, but to give our lives here purpose and meaning and through us to spread this good news to other people. Accept responsibility, your part, for what he wants to do in your life. Accept ongoing direction. Recognize this is a lifelong deal here. Being a father, being a mother in their case. You're saying yes to a lot. The same thing is true for you. You might not know everything you're saying yes to, but just recognize there's ongoing direction. Say yes 
accept this inconvenience. It's going to be difficult at times. It's not going to make sense. In your mind, there's going to be detours. Just recognize in the midst of all of that, as you're saying yes, you're saying yes to something much bigger, to this yoke that God has handcrafted for you. It fits. You and Jesus are yoked together perfectly as you walk into this thing that God has for you. Let's pray. Let's not pray. Let's do this first. There are tags under the end of all of, if you're on the brick side, look under your chair. There are these little gift tags. Grab one and pass it down. There you go. Y'all need them too. Everybody needs one. I talked for too long, so we're going to have to rush. So I apologize for that.